Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Set aside all the social norms we have, all the expectations we have about who animals are or what's appropriate to do for animals, and just ask, what would you do? What would you think the right thing to do is if you saw an animal who was suffering? Universally, I say, yeah, I think we should try and help. Hello, welcome to Joseph Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a, an intense episode. I want to be upfront about that. Um, it's an episode I've wanted to do for a long time, but it's an intense episode. Uh, my guest is a guy named Wayne Xiong, and Wayne is the founder of Direct Action Everywhere. It's an animal rights organization that does a lot of things, but is best known for doing open rescue, where they go to slaughterhouses or other places animals are being kept, and they rescue animals who are sick, um, not just suffering from being there, but, but, but really in bad medical condition. And that is... Uh, at least often considered illegal. And so Wayne and, and others in his organization are facing up to decades in jail. They're taking an enormous personal risk to highlight something in our society that certainly I think is sick. There are a couple of reasons I wanted to have Wayne on. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here in this intro on his biography because we talk a lot about that. But he's somebody who, to me, I find him very, on one level, inspiring, but on another level, level, very challenging, right? He's somebody who sees something unjust in society and is gambling almost everything, is leveraging almost everything of his own life to not just not be part of it, but to try and fight it. And I think people who live in the way he lives, uh, it's a challenge to all of us, right? Maybe animal rights are not the issue that moves you, but probably something does. And the question of why is he so connected to what this sort of moral intuition and obligation demands of him when so many of us are not, and I include myself in that uh, category, I think it's something at least worth reflecting on. In a way, this episode shares a lot uh, with the Peter Singer episode, but where that one was about the theory, um, this is about somebody who is living that kind of life in practice, who is trying to take seriously what they think, what they see in the world, the injustice they see in the world demands of them. But this is also a difficult episode because one of the things that I most wanted to do here was try to understand what had, wh why did Wayne get to this point when so many of us don't? And that ends up being a story, at least in the way he tells it, that has a lot to do with bullying and depression and suicide or thoughts of suicide at the very least. In ways that uh, are intense to listen to, um, I think they're worth it and it doesn't get too graphic or anything. And he's sitting here in front of me uh, or was <laughs> at least when we were doing the episode. So it's all at least from that uh, perspective, fine. But I do just want to warn people that there's a bit of a journey here and certainly a bit of a journey to a place to understand how this actually come up in some of our past episodes. 
how um, here's somebody who has really walked through a pretty long, dark night in his own life and has found a tremendous amount of meaning in something bigger than himself and devoting himself to others. We were talking after the conversation. I don't think he'd object to me sharing this. But we're talking about how he is facing things like jail time right now, and he does not feel the anxiety and fear he felt as a struggling academic in his 20s. And I think there's something really profound in that. If you think about even, say, the Vivek Murthy episode where we were talking about how one of the ways out of loneliness is often devoting yourself to others, there's a way in which, I mean, here's somebody who clearly struggled with something pretty profound in his own life and has found a lot of salvation devoted to others, even as that devotion means courting consequences that most of us could never imagine. So I think there's a lot to wrestle with in this. I won't spend more time introducing it, but I did want to at least say that. Uh, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here's Wayne Xiong, the founder of Direct Action Everywhere. Wayne Xiong, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's an honor. I listen to this podcast all the time, Ezra. I'm thrilled to hear it. <laughs> Let's start with, we had to get the timing on this one right, because you've got some legal issues going on. Tell me, tell me what Tell me what's happening with you. What are you facing? Yeah, I've got 16 different felonies that I've been charged with in four separate cases for investigating animal cruelty and in many cases giving aid to animals who are collapsing and dying on factory farms and in some cases smaller scale farms. And I, I'm going to be going to trial sometime in the next few weeks. And there are a couple of different possible trials. Yeah, there's four separate criminal trials and two civil trials, all brought by prosecutors in primarily rural agricultural counties across the United States of America. And what do you expect might happen? What is the range of outcomes you think is plausible for you here? The possible sentences in some of these cases are as high as 60 years. There's a racketeering charge against me in Utah for doing a couple of investigations at a Smithfield pig farm. It's the largest pork production company in the world. Realistically, I would guess that I end up spending anywhere from three months to maybe five years in prison over the next decade. And are these charges that Smithfield brings or is it the local DA? Nominally, the local district attorney or in the Utah case, the attorney general, the state of Utah brings the charge. But realistically, it's the companies that are pushing them. And if you look at the discovery, if you look at the politics behind them, if you do FOIA requests and find out how these charges came about it is very much about the amount of influence these large corporations have over our criminal justice system. All right, so we're going to come back to, to the legal cases, but you went to law school. You started in an econ PhD, you were just telling me. Like, <laughs> how, how do you go? You were a corporate lawyer for a period. Yeah. How did you end up here? Good question. I mean, I asked that question myself, too. And, and certainly everybody who knows me from my former life, the law professors, econ professors, the Securities litigators I worked with in Chicago are sort of befuddled and puzzled as to how I ended up where I am. I think the one word answer to that is dislocation, that my life has always been very dislocated. And that has honestly been very traumatic at times. I grew up as an immigrant kid, a fat immigrant kid in central Indiana in a family where we had no friends or family within, frankly, thousands of miles. I suffered a lot in middle school and had to leave school on a couple of occasions because of racist attacks against me, including once being sent to a hospital because <laughs> my face was sliced open by white supremacists. And How I, old were you? I was 14 or 15 at the time. And were these people you knew or? Yeah, I was a kid in school. His dad was actually a cop. And yeah, he sucker punched me on the back of the head 
outside of school and had some sort of bladed ring in his face and sliced my face open. So I've been in very low places and thought at various points in my life that it was probably over. And that has been scary and traumatic and honestly still left an emotional mark on me. But it's also given me a sense of freedom that I think most human beings don't have because I know what it's like to be at the bottom. So you leave Indiana. <laughs> I leave Indiana for college. Where did Not you go? voluntarily. I mean, I left after it was after this attack that. Oh, really? Yeah. I basically begged my parents. You know, I'd been begging my parents, frankly, since I entered school. I, it's a funny thing because I was a really happy kid. My parents say that when I was a baby, the, when I came out of the womb, they had to spank me to get me to cry because I was just smiling all the time and they're afraid I couldn't breathe. But when I went to school, it was a really hard time for me because, you know, I'm like a, a fat immigrant kid who wears his sister's hand-me-down clothes because we were super poor. So I'm wearing like feminine clothes as a fat Chinese kid in central Indiana. And that wasn't a good life. So I'd been begging my parents, frankly, for over a decade to let me out of school somehow. But you know, in Chinese culture, you go to school. You can't just leave school. And my parents are both employed, so they couldn't homeschool me. So, but after the attack happened, they realized, oh my gosh, this is much worse than we thought. So they let me leave school. What do your parents do? My mom was a mathematician and a math teacher, or that's what she wanted to do. Um, but, you know, she grew up in the the 60s when a Chinese woman in Taiwan is not going to end up being a mathematician. So she ended up being an educator. My dad was an organic chemist who became a molecular biologist and was one of the early, really, I mean, pioneers in genetics in this country. I mean, I'm saying he had some special influence, but he was probably one of the first few hundred people in this nation who studied genetics as, as a career. So after the attack, you prevail on your parents to, to, to let you out. Where do you go? Do they come with you? Does the family move? Do you just move? No, I, I homeschooled myself for quite a bit of time. I think it was maybe a year or so that I basically put together a plan to try and graduate from high school. And then I applied to small liberal arts college in central Indiana to go to college early. It, and they accepted me. What, what college? It's called DePaul University. Vernon Jordan is its most famous graduate. So far. Jordan. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So far. Well, I don't know. Before infamous infamous to, in my case, yeah, maybe. Sure. Not, maybe not famous, infamous. <laughs> so are you a big activist in college? I mean, is there, is there, I guess part of what I'm asking here, is there, I understand the point you make about dislocation, but there's also a form of radical confrontation in what you do now. Yeah. Is there precedent for that in your earlier life? Because in, in, until a certain point, as I understand your biography, yeah, yeah. you're a pretty classic, super high achieving immigrant kid. Yeah. Yeah, you probably knew a lot of those in Southern California, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, and in some They're ways, like pretty annoying. Too. And my my dad's an immigrant, so I'm you know at least on that side of the family, first generation, so I'm familiar with that. And it's a little bit why I don't really buy your dislocation story. Yeah, that yeah. I've heard stories like that, yeah. and most people don't end up facing a lot of jail time for rescuing animals on yeah, farms. Yeah. So there's something here that is a little deeper in you, or a little more contingent than. That narrative, which can apply to a lot of people who don't, who maybe then go to corporate law and are like, ha ha, yeah. I'm rich now. Yeah, bitches. for sure. I think it was a combination of dislocation and desperation. So it wasn't just dislocation. It was the fact that early on in my childhood, I, I had traumatic experiences individually, but then I had some traumatic experiences in China too, that shaped me pretty fundamentally. Seeing kids basically in starvation conditions when we went back to China for the first time, this is in 1989. Our family had not been back to China in 40 years because, you know, we were on the losing side of the Civil War. And when I went back to my, frankly, you know, home neighborhood, these, this neighborhood that I'd heard about 
since I was born. And I saw like kids who were exactly like me, but they had these big distended bellies and they're begging for food and, and money at every stop we make in the town. It's like, it's, it's horrifying and traumatic. Second thing is I saw dogs getting killed for food and it just, it messed up my head in a very deep way that I still haven't quite unpacked. And, you know, it's, it's 30 years later now, and I still occasionally have night terrors about things I saw when I was eight years old. So it did do something to me. And, you know, I like to think I'm a pretty well-adjusted person now, but when I was nine, 10, 11, thinking about these kids that I'd just seen last year who looked exactly like me, who were in starvation conditions in some cases, and animals just like my dog at home, who I saw screaming as they were being beaten to death, or at least I think I saw them. It's one of the funny things about memory. My parents swear they didn't actually allow me to see the dogs being killed. There were dogs in cages, and I remember them screaming. I remember seeing them. I have a very distinct recollection, but I... I'm a social scientist, or I've studied social science, so I know how fallible memory is. And they swear to God that we never actually saw the animals being beaten to death. But that had a pretty big impact on me. I think there's a, the, the big question of this conversation is going to be, are, are you actually not a well-adjusted person or are the rest of us <laughs> not in any way well-adjusted people? Like, I think that's actually the, 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 the great question here. But, okay, so you're in school. You, you were going to become an economist. You decided to become a lawyer. Like, what, what, what's happening in your head then? Are you an activist? What is, what is your what is your plan when you're 21? Yeah, you mean, you or maybe you're younger given that um, you yeah, went a little bit sure. early. You, you asked the question, how did confrontation become a part of your repertoire, yeah. a part of your way of thinking about the world? And honestly, it really wasn't. It, you know, it was, it was something that was thrust upon me by desperation and urgency in early stage. So, for example, when that kid attacked me when I was 15 years old or whatever, and I fought back because I was genuinely scared that I was about to die. And, and similarly, when... I went into grad school and law school. I, I mean, I thought from my earliest days, I was going to be an academic. My father wanted to be an academic. My grandfather, my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was, you know, a notable academic in China at one of the largest universities. I don't even remember which university it was, but I think it was like Nanjing University or something like that. So my family was an academic family. And my dad did not become a professor, primarily because of racism in this country, because his English was so broken, he just couldn't get a job. He was too embarrassed to give job talks. And when he gave job talks, people would laugh at him because his English was just so bad, still pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, so when I went into law school and grad school and thought I'm going to be an academic, that was really what I'd been trained to do. And again, I'm sure you knew Chinese and Asian kids like this in Southern California where their parents- I grew up on campus at UCI. I just want to be clear. <laughs> yeah, I think your dad was a professor, right? Is a professor, yeah. My, my, is, dad is is a, a, my dad is yeah, an so immigrant knew, mathematician. Yeah, yes. so you knew a lot of these kids who had just been, been engineered. And, you know, my parents are kind of very well-meaning, but befuddled parents, especially dealing with a central Indiana community that was not very supportive of immigrants. And But they didn't really know how to groom me to become a professor, but that was the only thing that I thought I was going to become. And I became an activist, frankly, largely because I failed as a professor. I was not a very good academic. I was not sufficiently motivated <laughs> to work on ideas. I hated working alone, sitting in a room by myself, because, you know, I basically lived in isolation for the first 25 years of my life. I was a depressed, miserable kid for most of that time period because I was living in isolation. And then here I am as an adult at the University of Chicago and at Northwestern, being told, yes, the rest of your life is going to be just as miserable as the last 25 years. And I just couldn't cut it. You know, I couldn't cut it. So I, I left my job. Did you, do, did you do activism just as a hobby or a practice in, in college or other points in your life? Yeah, I did it. But I, I, didn't, I didn't really think of myself as an activist. I did it because I just felt really sad, honestly. Like when I was, have you been in the University of Chicago campus? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, it's on the South Side. And mm -hmm. 
It's changed now, but back when I went to school, there's still projects within 15 minute walk of mm -hmm. the campus, you know, like these huge urban dystopian fortresses with sometimes barbed wire around them, tons of cops, shootings happening all the time. It's a dangerous campus. I mean, the campus itself is pretty safe, but you walk a little bit off the campus, you see little kids running around the street, you hear gunshots, and it's a scary thing. And, you know, like the, the two classes of beings I always had huge heart for, and I'd pretty much volunteered for, even when I was a little kid, were children and animals. And so like seeing little kids on the street who seemed unsafe, just like it scared me. It legitimately scared me and honestly kind of re-traumatized me and made me think I need to do something and I want to try and help these kids. The other thing that's unique is that you didn't have a big Chinese community in central Indiana. You had a very small community of like 30 people in central Indiana when I was growing up. So all my friends were not of the same age as me. In fact, the older Chinese kids didn't want to play with me because I was like the dorkiest of the bunch in the community. So all my friends were actually much younger than me. <laughs> like, my friends were like seven, eight, nine years younger than me. And I used to play with kids on Friday nights because no one wanted to go to the movies with me. So when I got to college, you know, I was kind of used to working with because my mom was a math teacher. So she worked with like young kids and I worked in her business and hanging out with kids that were like very young and being goofy and silly and not doing the cool things that most normal kids did. So I just kind of fell into it almost accidentally. But it was my first exposure to activism. It was a very good one. Michelle Obama, actually, in many ways, was one of my mentors. How so? She was the director of the University Community Service Center back in 1999, 2000, when I was a college student. And I think I only met her a couple of times. But even back then, I think everybody who knew Barack and Michelle thought these people have bigger things they're going to achieve. <laughs> they're they're going to do something really grand with their lives because they're both brilliant. And Michelle in particular, it's funny, Brock wasn't so nice. Like he was known as being very unfriendly and it was kind of a jerk to a lot of people. But really? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people said this. Like if you if you talk to Brock, President Obama, that's so disrespectful. My parents would be very upset at me right now for calling him Brock. <laughs> but it, back then, Brock. Back then, you know. Now President Obama. Professor Obama was not considered very approachable. He was not the friendly one. Michelle was the one everybody loved. And then Professor Obama was someone who was very distant from people. And I think even as a president, I think many people think that was one of his biggest flaws, that he just wasn't that social. There's a lot of people, um, to some degree, I'm one of them, but not to compare myself to, to President Obama. But there's a lot of politicians I've run into who they are extremely comfortable with a crowd of 5,000 people mm -hmm. and quite uncomfortable one-on-one -on -one or one-on-three. Yeah. And it, it's a personality type, oh, yeah. right? You And you get the opposite way too, right? I know a lot of people who are incredibly charming in small groups, but you put them in front of a huge crowd and they would freeze up. Yeah, for sure. And it, it comes off as a kind of uh, an arrogance and unfriendliness. Sometimes, in fact, is an arrogance or <laughs> unfriendliness, but oftentimes just... I've just always been struck by how there's a correlation between being very comfortable in huge crowds yeah. and not at all good in unstructured small group social interactions. No, I, I think you hit the nail <laughs> on the head. And my experiences with, with President Obama, which were very limited and back when he was just, you know, he was running for Congress against Bobby Brush in 2000. So that's, yeah. that's how we knew him. And, and they weren't that extensive. But I did interview him for the school paper back then because I was at one point a budding journalist too. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And, and yeah, that's exactly how I described President Obama, our then Professor Senator Obama, which is kind of awkward <laughs> in our personal interactions. You also worked a lot in the period when you were at law school with Cass Sunstein. I did, yeah. I mean, it, and I was pretty grateful for that. He's done a lot of work on animal rights and, and he does. Ha he has done a lot of work on animal rights. And, and I still remember one of my first experiences of law school in law school was, you know, Cass doing a lecture on animals and, and pointing to his shoes and saying, you know, these shoes aren't leather and I'm going to tell you why. And at the time, I was kind of a, 
self-loathing vegan who was kind of secretly vegan, but felt like it was awkward to talk about it openly. And, and Cass gave me a lot of confidence to talk about this the way I think it needs to be talked about. It is awkward to talk about openly. It is awkward. It makes you I mean, feel that, very bad point, around other right? people. Like yeah, the, it is. Like yeah. the, the point is to make it feel bad to talk about. Yeah. And as you know, a good Chinese kid. That way people kid, don't talk about it. Exactly. And as a good Chinese kid who was taught to never rock the boat and never say anything that offended anyone, I mean, it was really, really hard. And it's funny that my life has gone in such the opposite direction where I'm doing all these things that not only offend people, but get people to accuse me of domestic terrorism because they're afraid of the things that I'm saying. So you begin to do work as an academic. You decide you don't like it. What is that bridge to activism? What is what is the first step into that for you? Again, I think I had just a lot of opportunities that fell into my lap. But uh, around 2006, when I had graduated from law school, was trying to finish or thinking about finishing my Ph.D., Chicago became the first city in the nation and in the nation's history to pass a ban on the sale of foie gras. So, and and that ban is now subsequently passed in other places like the state of California, New York City just banned foie gras. And this is a huge victory because for most of the animal rights movement's history, there had been a lot of advocacy for animals and fur production, for animals that are being experimented on. These are generally considered more sympathetic animals like dogs and cats. There'd never been a victory like this for farm animals at in a political and geographic location of the size and importance of the entire city of Chicago. And I can't claim much credit for passing the ban, but although I was involved in it, it was mainly an alderman by the name of Joe Moore and an activist whose name is Jana Cole, who I, I still credit with early mentorship. She's the niece of Senator Herb Cole, who, you know, they're like a billionaire family. They're one of these department stores. And I got to know her very well back in those days. But I, I, what happened in 2006 and 2007, and this is my first example and first experience in politics and how just honestly corrupt politics can be, a bill that originally passed 49 to 1 in favor um, was suddenly under risk and under threat because the Illinois Restaurant Association hired the former chief of staff of Mayor Richard Daley to be their lobbyist. And, and suddenly that one person, that one you know financial outlay they made changed things dramatically. And we we're hearing completely different things from all the aldermen because it's very influential person and if you know anything about the history of Chicago, Chicago is very much a political machine where people work in alignment with big party politics. We're hearing from all these aldermen, oh, I don't know if I can stick to that vote, you know? And it's just, and, and suddenly it went within less than a year from 49 to one in favor to 36 to six against. And I was just desperate to do something about this because, you know, I, I heard about what happened to ducks in fog off farms. I, at that point, never actually seen it, but I'm someone who's always been very, very sensitive to animal suffering that anytime I see it, you know, it causes me to stop. And sometimes like it genuinely triggers these sometimes personal experiences that I had. I remember what it feels like to be afraid to be stuck in a locker, trapped, right? Because some kid's pushing a locker. And so I just, I felt this sense of real desperation about this ban being repealed and no one else was really doing anything about it. So I ended up organizing a, a political campaign to try and stop the ban from being repealed. And we lost because the vote was 36 to six against us. But it was, again, it was just kind of an accident of fate that I was thrust into it because no one else really wanted to step up. So you organized a losing campaign yeah. to keep the foie gras ban from being overturned. Yeah, it was a losing campaign, but in many ways it was also a winning campaign. And this is one of the things I learned from that experience and that I've subsequently learned from the social scientific research that losing is important because you learn things from it and it can change the Overton window. It can change the universe of political possibilities that are even available to, to you as an activist and to the community as a whole. And a couple things I, I learned from it, a couple things that, that excited me about the campaign. One is the ban was in national media. 
And this is a long time ago. And, you know, it's not like it was front page story of the New York Times for a week, but I think there was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal. And that was huge for us as, as grassroots activists. And the second thing I learned is the importance of mobilizing the grassroots, that it's not enough to have money because the initial campaign, you know, did have some big players, big nonprofit organizations that were supporting it, HSUS, Humane Society of the United States, I think the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty for Animals, I mean, organizations that have hundreds of millions of dollars in their coffers. But at the end of the day, when the political tides turned against the ban, they really just didn't have the resources and most importantly, the human power to push back against it. And, and we didn't either, because I didn't know anything about organizing and there wasn't much of an animal rights movement in 2006, 2007 in the city of Chicago. So I learned some things from it. And, and I went from there to, you know, it's a funny thing because I told you my activism was sort of like an accident and it was, you know, partly because of my failure as an academic. The weird thing about that is that a lot of the stuff I studied academically was relating to activism and social change. Because I was part of like a new breed of behavioral economics scholars who are trying to look at social networks and understand how individual behavior is not just individual behavior. It's heavily, heavily influenced by things like status and social norms and political institutions. So that was the time when I lost that campaign. I basically lost my job at Northwestern that those two worlds started coming together. And I started trying to use some of the research I've been doing as a social scientific scholar and applying it to the activism I was doing. So tell me more about this research. And what, one thing that's in my head as you say that is I just had this conversation on the show with Peter Singer, the great philosopher and one of the founders of uh, at least America's animal rights movement. Um, yeah, one of my heroes. Through his book, Animal Liberation. And I was talking to him about one thing that I always find strange about this particular issue and one thing I found strange in my own life on this particular issue, which is there are a lot of places where you need to convince people of something they don't already believe to get them over yeah. your side. And this is a, a case where you tend to only need to connect people to what they already believe, right? The, the issue is not that people think animals should be tortured on factory farms. The issue is that they're able to put the fact that they don't think that out of their minds. Yeah. And so I was asking him as a moral philosopher and somebody who studied this, what does he think happens in that, that space of, of disconnection from our own intuitions? How do mm -hmm. we shut suffering out? And he said that he believes it's functionally a collective process, that the, yeah. the kinds of moral problems we allow ourselves to notice are the ones that our social network and environment let us notice. Yeah. Um, and the kinds of problems that we don't notice are the ones that our social network uh, compels us to not notice, right? It's awkward to bring it up. Yeah. So what what did what kind of research were you doing there? And and how do you think about that question of moral reasoning as a social rather than individual act? A lot of the work that was coming out in the early 2000s was on the subject of social cognition and social perception. And it's a guy at Yale named Dan, Dan DeCon, Cahan that did a lot of this work. Cass is obviously Cass Sunstein, one of my mentors at the University of Chicago, who doesn't really talk to me anymore because I've become a radical animal rights activist. But they were doing really it's important work. It's a falling out for you guys? I don't think it's a falling out. I think it's more, I mean, Cass has written about this and spoken about this, that, you know, it, it's, it's hard to be someone in the mainstream who takes some of these intuitions we have about animals to their logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to risk a lot to really do that. And for me, because I didn't really have much to lose, it didn't feel like much of a risk. But for other folks, I think it, it's hard. And, and I think there's pragmatic reasons, too. It's not just about the personal, social, and psychological cost of saying, hey, I'm a radical animal liberationist, and I think we're inflicting one of the greatest atrocities in human history against innocent non-human animals. There's a pragmatic argument that is easy to buy into that I think many people have, maybe rightly bought into, which is, I have to be pragmatic about this issue. I can't say what I actually believe because what I actually believe 
is considered so crazy that I'll lose whatever credibility I might otherwise have to make change, even on this issue. But there are also many other issues that people like Cass and, and Peter Singer want to work on. So I think they have to hedge their bets a little bit right? and to not, note, to, not to, go full throttle on the animal rights perspective. To note, when Cass was nominated, for, for people who don't know this background, when he was nominated to lead the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under Obama, which is a super powerful regulatory position, Fox News began popularizing his animal rights legal work. Um, he had talked about potentially whether or not animals should be able to sue and what kinds of protections they should get. And they use that to paint him as a radical who yeah. shouldn't be permitted into government. And it was not that far from being successful. Absolutely. And, and that was that was a stuff. He's written a lot of uh, controversial things, but that was the stuff that broke through. That was the stuff that was mm -hmm. easiest to caricature about him. So yeah. so the, the pressure potentially that he's responding to here, when I say it, I, I don't say it without sympathy, like he's actually gone through the risk of that. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's funny because his research actually relates to this subject, too, and the research of a yes. lot of these social psychologists, sociologists, political scientists, and economists about the importance of social norms in dictating individual behaviors and beliefs. And more broadly, I, I mean, the body of work that I was most motivated by, that I wanted to work on, and I would have worked on if I was a better scholar, is just the importance of institutions. You know, institutions are, you know, social scientists define them as essentially rules of social behavior, right? And rules of, of social belief that guide human interaction. And, you know, Robert Fogel was a very influential professor at the University of Chicago at the time. He did the work on slavery in the, the 19th century, showing that this was an institution that was ultimately felled by a political and social movement that basically changed the way people politically thought about slavery. And, and there were a lot of other incredible scholars like Doug North, I think at Washington University at the time, he's at Stanford now, and, and subsequently, folks like Daron Asimoglu at MIT, who've written about, he wrote this great book called Why Nations Fail, which is all about how political institutions basically dictate not just how we behave, how we think about things, and, and frankly, the future of human civilization. It's not necessarily what I believe myself, but what I believe about what other people in my community believe that dictates the future of my conduct in our community. The hard part when you think about that institutional question is you get into a maybe this is the wrong metaphor for this space, but a chicken and the egg problem, <laughs> where the question is, are political institutions developed by what the community already believes, or do the political institutions dictate what the community ends up believing? To some degree, it's probably not just one or the other, but that is always the, the, the issue. I mean, there's a soil in which institutions take root, and yeah. to the degree that they're just the rules of, of human behavior in a particular uh, bounded community, that issue of, I mean, they come up for a reason. Yeah. I think you're asking the question that caused me to leave grad school, Ezra. I mean, <laughs> I just, I didn't have an answer. And I think the behavioral economics revolution that Cass and, and Dick Daler, who, you know, I, I took some classes from him when I was at Chicago. He's, I think he's already won the Nobel Prize. If he hasn't, he, he will someday. But he's a yeah, behavioral economics right. I believe he won it. Yeah, I think he won ago. it. Uh, I think he won it. With, did he win it with Kahneman? No, I think he won it separately. But anyways, the behavioral economics revolution is this fascinating attempt to try and take the kind of homo economicus individualized model of conventional economics and, and integrate it into the real world, which is a messy, socially motivated, irrational world. And I think I was being a little bit glib when I said it's the reason I left grad school. But honestly, I think the big problem that I felt like I just couldn't solve is how do you think about a world that's highly social from an individual perspective? How do you try and analyze these big, complex problems of war and peace and climate change and culture and laws, looking at human beings as the atom of analysis, as if kind of this is the unit that we have to look at? And I just couldn't figure out how to do that properly. And I think 
there's a modern breed of scholars who are figuring this out. And, you know, sometimes I'm actually wistful and I wish I'd join them. And I think the way the way they're trying to figure this out is understanding it's, it's honestly not that different from the difference between biology and chemistry. Understanding that a lot of times what's important is not the attributes or the beliefs of the individual, but how that individual relates to others. Things like trust, feelings of safety, communication matter just as much as what's in any in, in individual's head in determining what the course and future of this particular community and this particular individual are. And so the work you begin doing, I mean, it, it's funny because what, what you're telling me is that you leave academia because you couldn't figure out how to study this. Yeah. And instead of what you did was decide to go do it. <laughs> kind of, yeah, honestly. And and I think I think one of the things that made it hard for me to study it when I was a grad student or a law student and, you know, for a very short period of time and a very unsuccessful period of time professor was I didn't have the practical experience that has given me insight that I think I now have. And I, I'm not saying that going out there and running a campaign is going to give you proof as to which social scientific propositions are correct or which are not. What it does do is it generates a lot of hypotheses. And you can test those hypotheses and see if they work in the real world. We've talked a little bit about you running what sounds to me like a reasonably traditional legislative pressure campaign to keep the foie gras ban in place. What is the path from that to direct, nonviolent, confrontational action? Because that's a big, that's a big jump. Big gap, yeah. I think it's twofold. One is there has been an increasing body of research, and, and I shared with you one one body or one large volume of evidence by people like Erica Chenoweth talking about civil resistance and looking at this model that Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Susan Anthony are famous for. But those are really just stories. And so when when I thought about activism in 2006, 2007, when I wasn't exposed and familiar with this particular body of research, I thought, oh, these are great stories. I don't know actually how this worked. But increasingly, there's actually pretty strong empirical evidence showing that this form of nonviolent resistance is effective for a number of reasons. But, you know, two of the biggest are, one, it just generates huge amounts of attention, right? You can get an issue onto the agenda in a way that you cannot if you don't confront the system and show your willingness to sacrifice. Um, but the second reason is, if you do that in a way that's nonviolent, it has to be nonviolent. It can't just be attention gathering for its own sake. It has to be nonviolent. You also mobilize more support. And, and there's some pretty fascinating research by Doug McAdam at Stanford on the civil rights movement, showing that one of the primary mechanisms through which the civil rights movement obtained support was this cycle of sacrifice and mobilization that was only possible because the activists could claim the moral high ground. They could claim that what we're doing is, at the end of the day, in the public interest. And I think that's crucial for, for what we do today at DXC. So, so Chenoweth, and I, I should tell people I'm going to bring her onto the podcast in the, in the coming weeks because oh, her awesome. work is amazing and influencing a lot of different movements in this age simultaneously. But, but what she shows, she and her co-author studied uh, efforts at secession, at mm -hmm. revolution, at, over, at regime change, and found that nonviolent Nonviolent campaigns were a little bit, I believe, over twice as likely as mm -hmm. violent campaigns to succeed for, for all the reasons you're bringing out here. I was surprised when I emailed you and said, what, what should I read that influenced you that you sent me her work? Huh. And uh, I'll, I'll say why in a moment, but, but I want to ask this question first, which is, did you find her work and the work of some of the other folks you were just mentioning before you did your first action of this nature, or did you find it after you did your first sort of nonviolent showing a willingness to sacrifice and take on risk action? 
I think it was more or less simultaneous. That what, I, what was the first one? What did what was your first act that was that counts under her definition of nonviolent resistance? Well, I mean, I think Chenoweth would probably describe many of the ordinary ordinary protests we organized in Chicago, even frankly on the Fog Rock campaign, as acts of civil resistance. But there was no theoretical paradigm, and there was no desire to get out there and sacrifice and and get on the agenda. It was it was very kind of lacking in ambition and strategy. It was just, we, I felt compelled to do something no one else was doing it, so I did it. So I, I think that my first exposure to this work is probably Sidney Tarot. It's a political scientist uh, from, I think, Cornell, actually, who wrote a book called Power and Movement. And I remember reading that probably back in 2005, 2006. And, you know, as an economist, we like to think about numbers. And Sidney Tarot was basically making the same arguments as Erica Chenoweth, but without the numbers. So I think I was less persuaded by his work than I was by Erica's work. And even Erica's work, and I, I think Professor Chandler would say the same, it's it's certainly not foolproof, right? This is not an RCT. This is a historical analysis that there, there might have been something about these nonviolent movements other than their nonviolence that was correlated with nonviolence and led them to be successful. But it at least made me, when I read that paper, it's, it's a paper in and actually a journal that um, used to be very important to me because I have a master's in international relations. A lot of people don't know this is a paper written in international security. So it was like a, it's it's a journal read by people who work in national security stuff. It wasn't a journal that's usually read by activists, but I I did read that journal. And I do read that journal because, you know, I work with John Mearsham at the University of Chicago and that was the sort of journal that I read. So I think I read that paper around the time it was published. And I think it was published in what, 2011? And I think, I think I had not actually started with activism. What I had basically concluded, though, was that for us to actually create change for animals that was sustainable and effective, we needed to change institu institutions. So what, what Erica's work gave me was an answer to the question I'd been asking, which is, how do you change political institutions? And what was the first thing you did like this? I would say I accidentally did things like this before <laughs> being exposed to this body of knowledge. But the first thing we did with a, a coherent strategy to use sacrifice and legal risk and political risk to try and get onto the agenda of mainstream politics, to try and mobilize support using nonviolent methods, was actually a, a guerrilla street poem. <laughs> it was I, I there was a video that we did inside of a grocery store where, partly inspired by Improv Everywhere. Do you remember Improv mm -hmm. Everywhere? Okay, so they they did these things like the Central Station freeze, Grand Central freeze in New York City, where they had like a few hundred people just freeze in place at a huge train station this in New York City. This is a Bush-era group. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it was like probably 2007, late Bush. Era. Yeah, late Bush. But they they just would do improv in strange places. And a lot of their stuff would go viral in the early days of YouTube. You know, like millions of people would watch it. And, and back then, there were not that many million view videos. Yeah. It was like, wow, you know, we can be as influential as NBC. So it was a combination of Erica Chenow's work, looking at kind of the work of people like Otpor in Yugoslavia, they used comedy and improvis improvisation and, and risk of arrest to bring down a dictator, Slobodan Milosevic. I decided, let's try to do this for animals. And we did um, a gorilla poem. We basically pretended to be shoppers inside of a grocery store with a cameraman, obviously. And we suddenly converged a meat case one by one and delivered lines of a poem that we had written collectively and put on YouTube. And Within, I think, a few days, there were a few thousand views, which is many thousand more views than any of us have received on any video we'd ever done before, or really anything we'd anything we'd ever done before. Because up to that point, I'd been an academic where I think even to this day, you know, the, the paper that I'm most proud of has like 300 views on, J, on, on um, SSRN. 
So it was that, very exciting. That's no bullshit for SSRN. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not bad for SSRN. Better than the modal one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, but we 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 had a few thousand people watch it on YouTube. And more importantly, we had, I think, people in six different cities reach out to us and said, that was really creative and interesting. How'd you do that? Can we do something like this? And we said, yeah, let's do it. And that was the beginning of what we now call direct action everywhere. So let me tell you what surprised me about both the email you sent me and and and, and this story. In my like mental assumptions about you. <laughs> I had assumed that what's going on here is that you are somebody who is deeply inspired by Gandhi or King or some other great ac- nonviolent activist, and that what you were doing was sort of modeling that work and the issue that moved you most, um, that, that you come to this through inspiration. Yeah. And that it instead, both from like the list of resources you sent me and just the way you described this yourself, which is very cerebral and heady, and I read this journal because John Mearsheimer wrote in it. It sounds like you came to it through a kind of strategic calculation that you you looked around at the literature, looked at what seemed to be the most effective and began to build approaches that mirrored that. Is that fair? I think that's right. I think I was also inspired by nonviolent campaigns, too. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, this is one. You of don't talk of, about that easily, though. <laughs> I don't. I think it's because of my training and it's because of the communities and culture that I've been raised in. I'm from the time I was a kid. I mean, got, I've got two parents, one of whom is a scientist. The other person's a, a math geek. And, you know, this is kind of the sort of thing we talked about. And, and so it's just it's the way I think about things. And, and honestly, learning to talk in more inspirational terms is something I've had to train myself to do because my natural inclination is to geek out on numbers and and try and figure out, you know, what the the underlying model is. I mean, this is what what I did with my friends when I was growing up. The few friends that I had, the Chinese kids in Central Indiana, we'd play video games and try and write mathematical models to predict the outcomes when we change the variables in the video game, stuff like that. So this is kind of the thing that I'm used to talking about. And one of the reasons I was kind of excited to come on this podcast, because I know, you know, you're very much a policy and systems person. So. But what's funny is that um, it's totally true. But the thing that's interesting to me about the work you do is that there's something going on behind the like the either you are much more rational than most people or much less. But it's one of the two things, right? Like either you're seeing the thing more clearly and like you can't you can't lie to yourself about what it's all telling you. Right. You're able to see the nose in front of your face or um, you're, you're, you're moved a lot more because you're taking risks that most people won't take. I, I know a lot of people who care about a lot of issues. I know people who do work on climate change, on healthcare, on, um, on peace, on humanitarian work, on animal rights work, on like you name it, right? Like I've been in this business a, a while mm-hmm. and almost nobody takes real risk. Yeah. Like almost nobody, not their own. Right. And not risks that they are choosing to take. Some people will go and work in places that are dangerous, but they're trying to lower the risk as much as they can. But over time, you go from doing guerrilla poem, you go from doing basically legislative pressure campaigns to Mm -hmm. guerrilla poems to what you do now is you go places and try to you you conduct open, visible rescues in violation Mm -hmm. of local laws, knowing that you are going to get charged and potentially knowing that you'll go to jail for years. And, And we were talking about this, knowing that there's a possibility that you'll go to jail for not five years, but a lot longer because they'll make a political example out of you. Yeah. It's a lot of risk to take, right? And most people don't. Yeah, it, it is. And I think, you know, you asked, how did I come to this conclusion that this is the right approach to taking life and how much of it is the head and how much of it is the heart? You know, at the end of the day, I think the heart is what, what pushes me because it, it wouldn't matter how many papers I read and 
how much I appreciated Peter Singer as an intellectual, which I do. At the end of the day, the thing that drives me more than anything else is just the fact that I cannot stand animal suffering. Like, I cannot stand it. And even the thought of it happening, like even just thinking about it right now, like I'm remembering a little bit these images that I've seen of primarily dogs being beaten. And it's just, it's a funny thing because I don't advocate for dogs much anymore, but they're still the species that if there were a species that I elevated over all others, it would be dogs. Because, you know, my dog when I was growing up was my my sister. She was not my friend. She was not my pet. She was my sole source of companionship, my only friend in a world that felt very scary and lonely. And she meant absolutely everything to me. I'd come home every day, sometimes crying. And the first thing I'd do is i just collapse on the ground holding my dog. And we just shake and hold each other for like sometimes 15 minutes. And so, you know, all these rationalizations for why I take a particular approach. And honestly, maybe that generates some bias. You know, maybe that, and I've thought about this. Because at the end of the day, if I actually want to help dogs just like my dog and pigs who have the same cognitive and emotional capacities as my dog, I have to do the thing that's most effective. But the fact that I feel this intense sense of emotional urgency may have biased me in certain ways towards certain tactics that reflected that same sense of, of, of urgency. I hope that's not the case. And I want it not to be the case. And I hope that there are people to check me, like my friend Bruce, if it is the case. But I'm also, you know, if you Bruce read- Bruce Friedrich? Bruce Friedrich, mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm also very familiar with like Tetlock's work on prediction, that one of the things you have to do if you're going to make good predictions in the future is acknowledge your own possible biases. And one of mine is the fact that I am genuinely traumatized by animal suffering. Well, watching you sort of flip back and forth between the, um, like the emotional, it was so hard to see this, and then, but I got to check my own bias. And Phil Tetlock says, "When you're, <laughs> it's like a really interesting, it, like you're 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 running programs at the same time that are um, that most people don't run simultaneously, like with quite that level of rigor." And so, I guess one question is, um, you seem to be someone who's incredibly deeply affected by the visual experience of seeing animals suffer. Mm -hmm you have chosen a life where you'll see more animals suffer than almost any like other human being, right? You go to these places and the thing you do is break into them so you mm -hmm. can see the animals that are suffering so that you can then take videos so other people can see that those animals suffered. Like, what what is that experience like for you? Masochism? No, uh, it's a good question. And I, you know, I think the way to answer it for me is I always feel like I'm seeing animal suffering because I, and we've talked about this a little, you, you call it called the green pill, which I, I think is a great way to describe it, where once you realize that the suffering of other sentient being matters, everything you see kind of changes. You see someone eating a chicken sandwich, you think about a chicken being scalded alive. You watch people driving on the roads, you notice the raccoon on the side of the road that probably got hit probably wasn't dead when she first got hit and slowly and agonizingly died of bleeding out. You even just look at human buildings and, and you remember the images of forests that have been burned down. And there was this image from the New York Times in a, a year ago of, of deforestation in Indonesia, of this, this poor orangutan whose all her babies had been burned to death and she was burned half to a crisp, but still alive. And you realize, wow, all the buildings I'm living in, all the land I'm on right now, is a product not just of dislocation of indigenous peoples, but of probably millions and millions, maybe even billions of sentient beings who fled in terror because human beings came here. And so I'm always seeing this. And when we go and do these projects, it is hard because it's, it's, it's obviously a little more salient when it's right in front of you and you're carrying a baby pig who is malnourished and you know, has a broken skull, which I've done before. 
But if you feel like you're doing it with a purpose and that there's ultimately something good that's going to come out of it, it very much motivates you to keep going. And, and frankly, it's a funny thing because I, I first walked into Slaughterhouse, I think in 2006 or 2007, I don't even remember, but I was still a professor at Northwestern. And partly because I was failing at Northwestern, I decided, you know, I'm just going to do this crazy thing because I'm probably going to kill myself anyways, which I legitimately was every day. I'd go to work at Northwestern and feel ashamed of myself because I was not doing the work that my colleagues appreciated and respected. I'd go to the top of the parking lot and think about throwing myself off the top of the parking lot because I thought I'm letting my family down. I'm letting my colleagues down. I'm letting Cass down because Cass got me that job. It just felt like my life was falling apart. But a really funny thing happened because I'd never actually seen a slaughterhouse or a factory farm before that point. And I thought it was going to be an awful and horrible experience. In many ways, it was because I saw these huddling baby animals. It was a veal and lamb slaughterhouse called Chipetti Veal and Lamb, the only slaughterhouse left in central in Chicago. But something pretty surprising happened, which is because I went in and saw how easy it was to get in and saw how easy, at least in theory, it would be to take one of those animals out instead of re-traumatizing me and making me think even more about how desolate and dangerous a place it was for non-human animals, it made me feel like, wow, this problem, at least for this individual animal, is pretty solvable. Like there's nobody here, no one pays attention. This is a fairly small slaughterhouse, but even at a fairly small or mid-sized slaughterhouse, there isn't much attention paid to the animals because they're all commodities. You know, a lot of them are treated like garbage, literally thrown out into landfills. And so I thought, this is shockingly easy. I mean, I just came in here and if I had a camera right now and if I had the physical strength or a team and could pull one of these lambs out, it would be pretty easy to save a life. What brought you into that slaughterhouse in the first place? You were there alone? The first time I went in, I was alone. And then I, I started going with some other folks. But the reason I went in was because it was accessible. And, you know, I knew from the jungle. But wait, 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 no, 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 that's not why you went in. It's accessible to a lot of people and we don't go to slaughterhouses. For sure. You you decided to go to, like, was it a Tuesday? Like, what, what I happened? Don't even, I think it was a weeknight. Yeah, I think it was a weeknight. And I think, you know, it's a, probably 1 a.m. But my thought process was, this is probably... I'm guessing it's probably in 2007, maybe near the the middle of 2007, because I left Northwestern around September of 2007. So it was probably maybe the summer of 2007. But we were in a time in the animal rights movement where everyone was scared to do that sort of work because some folks, including a close friend of mine, had just been convicted and gone to prison under a law that was passed in, I think, 2006 called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Or actually, they were not convicted under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. They were convicted under the precursor to that called the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, which essentially politically targeted animal rights activists for especially severe sanctions, including long prison sentences, in many cases for completely nonviolent activism, you know? So, and partly because of that, and because, you know, this is just the beginnings of the ag-gag movement where, you know, there is an activist in upstate New York named Adam Durand, who had been prosecuted for an investigation and went to prison. He got the maximum sentence possible, six months for trespass. So people weren't really doing these sorts of things anymore, and they were scared to do these sorts of things. And I thought, well, here I am. I've got nothing to lose because, you know, my life is in shambles and it's over. And, you know, I was a pretty pathetic person at the age of 25 or 26. Like, I'd never gone on a date, didn't have any friends. Like, I was very, very broken human being. So I thought, well, the one thing that I probably care about more than anything else, even though I hadn't really done a whole lot of academic work on this issue was the suffering of animals and children too. Because, you know, to me, animals and children are very similar in their vulnerability and the fact that there's a lot of violence in the world where you can say, oh, who's at fault? It's, you know, well, 
the police always say, well, you know, that that person pulled a gun on me or, or right. they had yelled at me or done something to deserve the violence. With children and animals, there's no argument <laughs> that these animals deserve what they got because they're children. They're animals. It's like a little lamb who's just sitting there bleeding because she's terrified you're about to slit her throat. And so I thought this is the one thing that has motivated me more than else that in my personal experiences, I felt most personally grieved by because when I was a kid, I was bullied very severely and scared a lot. And I just thought to myself, I, I don't want any other being to ever go through what I had to go through, even on a few occasions, like being trapped in a locker as like an eight-year-old kid because all the kids are making fun of you for being a fat Chinese kid. That's like a scary thing for any kid to go through. And I thought, so just do something about it. Was there a sense or when you look back, was there a sense that you just needed something a lot bigger than yourself to be devoted to? I mean, it, it it sounds like you were also looking for something. Yeah, I think that had been the case for a long time. Because when you, when you feel like your life doesn't have much worth and you don't feel very good about yourself, which I never did, I mean, I think this is a lot of the reason people find so much solace in religion. Because mm -hmm. when they're struggling, when they don't like their lives or themselves, they can appeal to this higher power. And our family is pretty dislocated by this move. A lot of my ancestors are Buddhists. We come to the United States and there really aren't any Buddhist temples in central Indiana. So we join this Christian church, which doesn't really make any sense to any of us or to me, frankly. So there's no sense of purpose beyond just the material well-being that you're trying to achieve for yourself and your family. And if you don't feel good about yourself, having that sense of purpose is really crucial. And I think, I mean, a lot of sociologists have pointed this out too, that Nicholas Krasakis says that one of the reasons people found religion and religion became a part of human civilization was because when people were feeling isolated and dislocated, they needed to feel like they had a friend. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge part of what the animal rights movement gave to me. It was kind of my religion. It was this sense, and it, it's a funny thing. I mean, one way this manifested itself concretely was I was such a crazy kid. It's like I did the silliest, dumbest things. Cause I mean, I didn't, I didn't really have anyone to check me socially because I didn't have any friends, but I mean, I remember when I was like 13 years old and I still had like imaginary animal friends. <laughs> like this teenage kid who I'd go around walking in the forest and I'd say, hey, Mr. Squirrel, how are you doing today? And I pretended we had this long relationship and conversations. And I, I honestly like, I don't think I entirely believed the squirrel really cared about my feelings and like wanted to hear about all of my struggles. But there was a part of me that really did in the same way that I think religion gives people solace and connection and support for, and, and so for me, that that's what the animals gave me. And, and so when I decided to walk in that slaughterhouse, it very much felt like it was part of this calling that I'd had from the time that I was a kid. You can answer this in the specific or in the general, but when you go into these slaughterhouses, what do you see? Like what, what I, I mean, I've watched some of the videos, so I, I, I know a bit, but, but would I be surprised by, by what I see? I mean, what do you think, it, what was different than you expected or given the work you do now, what do you think is different inside them than people expect? The first thing you notice that's surprising is the smell. And the smell is also not what you'd necessarily expect because it does smell like blood and death, but there's another smell that you can't quite put your finger on until you see kind of the vats of chemicals near or inside the slaughterhouse. And at most poultry slaughterhouses, for example, I mean, people in the United States don't really know this, they have chlorine everywhere because mm -hmm. they spray chlorine on all the chickens because they know when you're raising animals and filthy factory farm conditions where animals are collapsing their own feces and when they're all dying of various infectious diseases, you got to wash the birds with chlorine. So you smell something that is a little bit like feces and a little bit like death. If you've smelled death before, which is an awful smell, death does not smell good, but also has this chemical smell to it. 
And and I did smell that at Chipetteville and Lamb. I was like, what is this? I mean, it's like, it doesn't quite smell like a dog shelter. It smells like something different. It smells like something that seems more artificial and, and more, more chemical based. And then the first thing you'll generally see when you go to a slaughterhouse is just, you know, an industrial facility. And that's, that's another thing that most people don't realize that slaughterhouses, they think of slaughterhouses as these kind of agrarian farm-like buildings where you've got pens and barns and, and, you know, grassy pastures, that sort of thing. But no, it's just, it looks like a warehouse and you see it. And if, if you didn't smell the awful smell I'm emanating from it, you might actually think this is a place where they're shipping products for Amazon, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And it isn't until you walk in and you see the transformation that's happening to living creatures inside that you realize this is not a warehouse. This is not just a factory. This is something very, very different. And at Chapitiville and Lamb, it was it was such a weird place because it might still be this, that way this way today, but the blend between that kind of industrial factory office environment and the animals being slaughtered was so directly and jarringly juxtaposed in the following sense. When you walked into the office, so before I actually went into the stockyards and try and infiltrate the slaughterhouse. I'd went in the front and pretended to be someone who wanted to buy some product for them. And they had, like, you walk in, you open the door from the front door and they have a normal reception desk computer and a, a pleasant looking woman who's there responding to any inquiries, answering phone calls. She's got a computer. This is mm-hmm. like the year 2006. So, you know, they got all the trappings of modern technology. And like 10 feet away from her are these decapitated corpses going down an assembly line and blood just flowing everywhere. And it was just, you look to the right and you look to the left and it's almost like you're going through some sort of visual whiplash where this seems like a normal office environment, not dissimilar to the environment we're in right now. And then right over here, I'm seeing blood flowing ever everywhere. I hear animals screaming in agony a few hundred yards to the west of here. And there are these decapitated corpses of animals, you know, hooked and hoisted onto an assembly line, passing me by as people rip out their innards. That juxtaposition for me was such an important allegory for just the nature of human civilization now, right? That this modern, comfortable, clean veneer that hides the often dark truths of where that veneer is coming from. Right. There's the when when Singer was on the podcast, we were talking about his very famous thought experiment that you're, you know, walking by the pond and you see a child drowning and you're wearing the nice suit and do you do you save the child? Of course, of course, you know, of course you would save the child in front of you in the pond, even if it meant you had to dry clean the suit. Then his point that, well, that's just the situation anyway. Yeah. Um, the fact that the kid is not in front of you doesn't actually change the underlying moral obligation. And this seems a little bit like that same dynamic where that juxtaposition, which is incredibly spatially compressed there, Mm -hmm. it's no different. That isn't a different juxtaposition than you're sitting at your computer and your office job and you go down and you get a chicken sandwich for lunch. Yeah, yeah. It's just been made salient to you. You know, it's it's, it's there for you physically and, and emotionally and through all your various senses to absorb what the actual meaning of this chicken sandwich or this hamburger actually is. And yeah, actually that 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 paper that he wrote on, I mean, the original paper is called Famine, Affluence, and Morality mm-hmm. in Philosophy and Public Affairs, which is probably the most important journal in philosophy. That paper was actually very influential in, in my decision to do this sort of work too. Um, much to Singer's chagrin, perhaps, because I know he doesn't like all the work we do. He likes some of the work we do. And actually he likes the open rescue stuff. But what is his critique of you? 
I'd have to talk to him directly about this, and he's mostly said positive things to me personally and directly. My guess is his main critique of us is not working with existing institutions to make incremental progress. That I know he's a great believer in that and things like animal welfare programs and not acknowledging the efforts they're making that, that are good, which I, I think we should. Um, I think the difference between us might just be a factual difference as to how much improvement in animal welfare a company like Whole Foods is actually making. Well, okay, so this gets into maybe DXC's larger role, and we're, we're, we're jumping around here a little bit, but you guys are controversial within the animal rights movement. For sure. So there's always been this tension, as there is in almost any social movement, between the people who are trying to work with existing stakeholders to make things incrementally better mm-hmm. and the people who are operating in a confrontational way with the potential for alienation because of that, mm-hmm. but but trying to change the system sort of root and branch. And you're very much on the operating in the system in the more confrontational way. Um, and the question that is always raised there, PETA is a sort of forerunner in this way. Yeah, and absolutely. PETA is, I think, both an organization has been incredibly effective at generating attention and has probably in many ways been effective at, gen- at some of its goals, but mm-hmm. has also alienated huge, huge numbers, numbers of people, people. and yeah. is a very controversial organization. How do you think about that tension? How, do, how did you decide that that kind of work is effective. And you guys have ended up sometimes, I should say, on the wrong side of it when yeah. uh, you guys had an activist rush stage and take the mic from Kamala Harris. Yeah. The attention that got was not yeah, super great. Terrible. And on the other hand, you've done work that has gotten huge amounts of people to, to see things they otherwise wouldn't have seen. So how do you think about the the tension there between um, confrontation that, as Chenoweth would say, like yeah. brings people over to you as a people of the moral high ground yeah, yeah. versus confrontation that creates alienation and pushes people away from you? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think it's one of the questions that has befuddled social movements and activists for, frankly, probably since the beginnings of human civilization. And I, the first thing I do is challenge the the question a little bit and, and say that the effective movements that I've seen do both of those things. Mm-hmm. And Doug McAdam, actually, a professor at Stanford, is the one who put this best to me, which is that you've got to be able to play both games well as a movement and sometimes even as an individual organization. And we have tried to do this. It's not, we don't just do non-institutional politics. I mean, we were the number one lobbyer for the fur ban that passed in California just a few weeks ago. We, you know, have tried to pass right to know legislation. I think we will ultimately pass right to know legislation in the Bay Area. Right to know legislation being? It's legislation that require disclosure and reporting by any company that is selling animal products as to the origin and the conditions of the animals uh, at the farms and slaughterhouses when the meat is actually coming from, when you sell it at a grocery store. So I, I think that the the two things I'd say a, about that question, but, but I think even if they are complementary and not necessarily kind of antipodal, the question is still a good one. How do we decide how to allocate resources between those two approaches, right? And, and I think for me, there's two things that really guide my analysis. One is contrary to everyone else in the animal rights movement, until we came along. Our primary goal is not actually to change public opinion now. It's to mobilize activists now and for the foreseeable future, which means your messaging and your tactics are a little bit different. You're, you're playing to your base much more than you might otherwise, you know, worry about things like alienating the right-wing person in North Carolina, you know, because we're looking at the history of social movements. We're looking at stuff like Erica Chenoweth's research on, you know, the rule of 3.5%, that if you get 3.5% of the population mobilized and sustained nonviolent direct action, you can start a domino effect that changes your entire society. And so our metric for deciding, should we confront or should we accommodate, is very much based on that question, 
and not, is our media attention positive? Media attention is great, don't get me wrong, but the primary mechanism through which media attention helps us in our theory of change is it drawing more activists in our movement. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say about that is that if it is true that almost all movements have some combination of direct action and institutional politics, and, and honestly, this is the way I define direct action. Direct action is essentially non-institutional politics. It's working outside of the conventional channels of, of corporate halls of power, of congressional halls of power, to try and create change by imparting pressure on these institutions from the outside and, and changing the Overton window, breaking these systems so we can re-engineer them in positive ways. And when I looked at the animal rights movement, especially in 2012, when we decided to start DXE, that aspect of the movement that would push the, the Overton window, that would serve as a radical flank, that would provide the civil resistance that Chenoweth and, and so many other scholars have, have written and said has been an essential and maybe the essential aspect of every significant political movement over the past couple hundred years was completely lacking in the animal rights movement. It was non-existent. It had been gutted by the AGAG laws, by the ATA, by the end of a campaign called Shack in the mid-2000s. And so just from a resource allocation perspective and from you know a marginal opportunity perspective, I thought, where is the greatest need and where is the most po possible marginal gain? It was then this aspect of the movement. The thing you saw flicker on my face there is I realized while you were talking that I am describing this, I think, wrong, or at least wrong in my experience of what you do, which is to double back on myself here that I think something different about what you're doing from confrontational activism in the way it's often thought of, uh, sort, of sort of PETA or ACT UP, is that you don't tend to confront people. You tend to um, – it's much more sacrificial. Yeah. Uh, the, the, like the confrontation that I experience with you is a question of you and your colleagues are putting like your futures on the line in this way. Yeah. And what does that say about what I – am or I'm not doing, right? Yeah. That the confrontation operates not through like coming and like dumping a bucket of blood on me. And yeah. not to say you guys have never done anything like that. You've had some very radical sort of performative, yeah, yeah. Um, but the stuff Hopefully I think you're not. Best, yeah. huh, right. But but you've done some sort of like smearing feces on stuff. Wasn't there something like that? So we do it to ourselves. Right. But never well, to was, anyone else. Right. And that, that would be a violation of our values. And, right. And more importantly, not effective in my view. Right. So, but but yeah, that's a, a little bit more what I mean. There, there's some things that are just meant to, to attract attention, but there's some things that are meant to force you to question your own moral decision making. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that you do that uh, in my personal experience of it is very powerful is just by example, it forces yeah. you to question your own moral decision making, right? If they're willing to risk this, well, then what are what are you doing, right? Yeah. Oh, you're 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 concerned that if you do this podcast, people are gonna you know send you gifts on Twitter of you know shut up, Lisa Simpson, like whatever it might be, and and that's a part of this I was trying to get at at the beginning too. Of of to me, this is the part of your activism, the part that seems to take a lot of inspiration from things in the civil rights movement and, sure. and other nonviolent movements, but that is really. It takes a tremendous amount of personal moral commitment to do, yeah, right? Yeah. It's much harder than a protest. It's much harder than a performance. Yeah. Um, and it and communicates something because it's hard. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't hard, it would not communicate the same urgency. Right. And 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 you're doing it, and I, I guess this is a place where you connect that sort of head and heart dimension of yourself, where you're doing it in a very strategic way against certain laws. And we should talk about what an open rescue is, and we should talk yeah, about yeah. sort of what, what specifically you're challenging. But that's actually the, the bridge I'd like to draw to here. We've talked a bit about sort of your first more performative act, right? The gorilla poem. 
But at a certain point, you move to these things where you are courting and your colleagues are courting arrest Mm -hmm. um, in order to show people things that they wouldn't otherwise see or rescue animals who, even within the context of the laws we have, are being ill-treated before they would otherwise be killed. Talk a little bit about that, about just that work, right? The the modal DXC open rescue. What is it? What does it mean? Yeah. An open rescue is an act where one or more individuals go into a situation where an animal is being abused without covering their faces, documenting everything they're doing, and try to record what is happening in that facility. And if there is an animal who's suffering, give aid to that animal and then publish it to the world very openly and essentially dare the government and the industry to come after us for what is essentially an act of compassion. What do you mean to... if there is an animal that is suffering, right? Aren't, um, I mean, certainly the, the animal rights movement views are all suffering. They, they're all suffering. And I, I think that the people define an open rescue different ways, but as Patty Mark defined it, she's the Australian activist who first started doing open rescues in Australia and I think it was the late 1980s. And the way we define it is an animal who's in medical need, that this is not just I'm stressed and bored and sick from confinement, but typically in a factory farm, I have this, this thing called the one, you know, five twenty rule. <laughs> there's about one, and this is not true of all factory farms. It's, there's a lot of species specific distinctions you could draw, but it is generally true, roughly in terms of orders of magnitude, that 1% of the animals in a factory farm are generally going to be so sick and distressed that if they don't get medical care within the next few hours, they'll probably die. So you look at mortality rates on a turkey farm, in the span of three months, 10 to 15% will die. In an egg farm, you're looking at 11% over a year and a half. In a pig farm, in a nursery, 18% of the piglets will die because of disease, trampling, confinement, all sorts of horrible things happen to them. And at any given point in time, I mean, that 18% or 10% is over a period of months. But at any given point in time, when you enter a farm, there's going to be about 100 animals who are so bad that if you don't rush them to receive veterinary care, they're going to die. There are 5% who are seriously injured <laughs> to the point that they're on death's door and they're not going to end up at a slaughterhouse, you know, so they have no economic value. But they're not in such great medical need that if you don't rush them to a vet, they're going to die. So these are animals that are non-ambulatory, for example, which is large numbers of animals in chicken farms, mm-hmm. you know around 25, maybe up to 33% of chickens at slaughter have serious difficulty walking. Many of them can't walk at all. And then there's about 20% who have, if you brought them to the vet, have some clinical discrete injury or diagnosis. They're infected with something. They have an injury. Maybe that's not so severe. They need to be rushed to the vet. Uh, but, but they're sick in some way. And then there's what you're pointing out, the 100% of animals that are suffering in some way because of confinement, because of stress, because of fear. So what we usually do at DXC and what typically open rescue activists have done is focus on that 1%. And the reason we focus on that 1% is primarily for communications reasons, just pointing out that the absurdity of this system is most obvious in a case where an animal is so sick and so injured that they're moments from dying. And yet when someone attempts to give them aid, when they're moments from dying and they have no economic value, they're being egregiously punished for it. That points out absurdity in the system. It's like a bug in the code. You know, like I was a coder a long time ago, and I like to think about our work as trying to rewrite programs that are buggy. And that is a bug in the code we're trying to point out. And the most glaring bug is that case. Because, you know, if you look at, frankly, social media today, the stories are, are frankly, kids' movies, like Pixar movies. What are the stories that most motivate people about animals? They tend to be stories of animals who are in very bad shape for, for some reason, 
who get back on their feet. And so we know from a communications perspective, these are the stories that are gonna motivate people most. There's also a legal argument we're trying to make too though, which is that at least in the case of the most sick and distressed animals, it is first just scientifically and bi biologically necessary for these animals to get care, or at least to be humanely euthanized if they can't be given care. And second, legally illegitimate for people to be punished when they try to give those animals care. Because I think what you're saying is true about telling a story and just while you're saying that, it's something that um, I buy a lot of children's books now because I have a nine-month-old and he does not, he like tries to eat them while I try to read them <laughs> to him. But one day he's going to be interested in this with me. And I just think all the time now about, you and I talk about like my green pill concept about yeah. how, however you eat, once you sort of decide take seriously what all this means about the world, the world begins to look strange and gruesome, but it's an alienating experience. And I just think all the time about how the main characters in almost all literature or entertainment or movies or books for children are animals, mm -hmm. right? How intuitive it is that we care about animals, yeah, how intuitive it is. it is that if we want kids to care about something, we don't put humans there yeah. first. We put animals there first, right? Mm -hmm. The the main characters are going to be animals. Um, just like everything you, like, I love Sandra Boynton books for my mm -hmm. son. I just, like, she has an amazing way with language, but like every character in a Sandra Boynton book is an animal. Mm -hmm. Like, every character in a Richard Scarry book is an animal. They're all fucking animals. <laughs> and there's just this way in which, like, this is like the crazy um disconnect of the society like once you start seeing it it just becomes maddening yeah it is. right like we know like like look, look look what we give our kids yeah and then it's like and then that night you go to dinner yeah yeah it is it anyway so i know that's a little bit of a, a digression but it's one of these places where i just once you begin looking at it you just like can't imagine yeah that it's happening this yeah, way there's a lot of theories as to why kids books have animals the thing that that most struck me and i think is probably right is that Animals for kids feel safe and authentic. Yeah. They feel very safe and they feel authentic, like without artifice, because human relationships are so complicated and disconcerting and dangerous. Well, you know, that that pig who's talking in your book, it's funny because it's obviously fictionalized. It's not, <laughs> pigs don't actually talk. But to the kid, it feels safe and it feels real in a way that their interactions with other human beings don't. Right, and and it's not abstract shapes, right? I mean, it's yeah. not that we create blobs or alien. I mean, you could do that, right? It could all be robots in kids' books. That would be totally reasonable, but it's not. And, and there's just a way in which we know. But the, the thing I was going to ask you about that then is, tell give me a story of this right you're you're kind of give me the big picture of it yeah, but but yeah. tell me tell me the story of one of the cases that you're facing yeah for sure well i mean the the case i usually give is lily you know this is a piglet we found in the largest pig farm in the nation circle four farms it is owned by smithfield foods which is itself owned by wh group a chinese conglomerate that is controlled and financed by the chinese government and Circle Four Farms is a company that historically has been caught up in all sorts of misconduct, whether it's human trafficking, environmental abuses, and obviously animal cruelty. And the reason we decided to go in there specifically was because Smithfield, about 12 years ago, made a commitment to end gestation crates. And for your audience that doesn't know, gestation crates are these medieval torture devices where mother pigs are trapped in two foot by seven foot metal tombs for their entire lives. They can't even turn around, they can't even really turn their heads. For, for four years before they're slaughtered. And we were suspicious as to whether Smithfield had actually ended the use of gestation crates for various reasons and decided to do an investigation and possibly an open rescue if we saw a suitable candidate. But you asked me about the rescue. And you know, as I said before, statistically, you know, this is an industry figure, 18% of piglets don't make it out of the farin crate. 
which means there are 18 million piglets at least every year who die in horrible, disgusting, awful ways every year. But that's, that's just in America. Number. That's in the United States alone. So 100 million the, the, pigs are killed we, in the United States. And, you know, in China, it's like 400 million, and worldwide, I think it's over a billion. I don't remember the exact figure. But those numbers don't feel very real until you see the individuals, and and they they don't move you <laughs> until you're there with an individual who's actually suffering. And the two most common ways piglets die in factory farms, like Circle Four Farms, are starvation and crushing. And the reason they starve is uh, because of what was happening to Lily. Namely, she was too little, and her mother did not have enough teats to actually feed all the different piglets. They've selectively bred these pigs to give birth to more and more pigs, and a lot of their, this is kind of grim and horrible, but their, their nipples actually get ruined by constant forcible impregnation, having so many babies constantly chewing on the nipples. And so they actually lose some of their nipples. They, they get torn to shreds and get infected. So Lily was one of the piglets that was too small to actually access food and water. She was too small to escape when the other piglets piled on her. And so she developed a leg injury. So she was now facing a double threat. Namely, she was already runt and now couldn't walk. And we found her, the, the other piglets by that point were about 10 pounds. And she was, we, we know this because we weighed her later, she was only two pounds. She was emaciated, extraordinarily thin, had a golf ball size swollen foot because her foot had been crushed, whether by the machinery at the farm, by the other piglets, or even by her own mother's hoof. And, and typically what's going to happen in a more natural setting is when there's a baby who falls behind, the mother can do things to try and help them. I mean, just like if your kid is hurt, and cries, there's something you can do. But these mother pigs, because they're trapped in this mental tomb, they can't even really turn to look at their babies, much less try and do something to help them. And you can tell they're really upset about this because when you have a baby pig crying, I mean, baby pigs crying, it's like one of the worst sounds in the world. It's just, it, even a psychopath, I feel like, would be compelled to action when you hear a baby pig crying because they cry like someone's murdering them, you know? But she had to constantly hear this poor baby pig crying, 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 and was trapped by this these mental bars from turning and even trying to give her assistance. And this is the way he found her, just collapsed on the ground next to her mother, just trying to push up against her mother, not near where she would feed because she couldn't really access that part because there were too many other piglets fighting for food and just kind of wobbling. She was just wobbling back and forth. And this piglet was actually one that, you know, we, we always make these triage decisions as to whether this is a piglet we can actually save. And, you know, I honestly thought when we took her out, it was just, not necessarily the most rational decision, but we just felt morally compelled to because it was so upsetting for all of us to see her there just tottering. Her head just kept going back and forth. Like her eyes were opening and closing. You could tell she was still stressed and upset because every time another just piglet- Just where you're standing, how many pigs and piglets can you see? Yeah. So, I mean, we're seeing hundreds and hundreds of piglets in, in farring crates in a, in a massive industrial shed. And they're all on these metal concrete slats uh, metal or concrete slats so that the feces that is produced by the animals can be washed away. And so they don't have any place soft to sit or stand. Um, they don't have sufficient warmth, especially when the other piglets are fighting for their mother's body. And when there are often heating pads for them, but you know, if you're the little one, you can't necessarily get access to eat. So we just see this baby pig in the middle of a Utah winter teetering inside of a factory farm, unable to really walk properly and clearly in, in, ungodly amount of pain. So we decided to take her out. And when we took her out, I was pretty sure she was going to die. And it was a minor miracle that she made it out alive. But 
you know, three weeks later. And this is one of the remarkable things about farm animals. And, and this is true of all the species of farm animals, especially in the past 1500 years, they've actually become extremely tough <laughs> in a lot of ways. They've become extremely tough in the sense that they can take a beating <laughs> Mm-hmm. and keep walking and keep moving because an animal that's not able to walk often can't make it to slaughter. They become tough um, in the sense that they can have lesions on them, sicknesses, and, and survive, You know, partly because of the massive amount of antibiotics that are being used. But honestly, emotionally, they're tough too because if animals became too emotionally defeated too quickly in a factory farm environment, all the animals would just give up and starve to death very quickly. And, so they're sort and of bred was, for this resilience. Yeah, they, they are yeah. bred for this emotional resilience. And I think that, it, and part of that is is kind of their ability to bounce back when something bad happens. And Lily did bounce back and she's alive today because we took how, a chance. How are you facing a case for her then? So what, what happened after we removed her was the, the FBI started an, a d- domestic terrorism investigation under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. And, I do feel a lot safer. <laughs> so the... The, the piglet was, you know, brought to a, a veterinarian in a sanctuary. She was only in my custody for, you know, uh, a few hours, although I did care for her at someone else's, you know, place of residence for a few weeks after that. And we thought nothing of it and nothing came of it because when the company is slaughtering 1.2 million pigs every year, you know, one dying pig when 20 million of them, or I guess 200,000 of them are going to die every year, it's... You know, it's not even a rounding error. It's and this investigation, I assume, is pretty straightforward, given that you put up a video of it. Yeah. So right? this, like, is, this is a, a few months later. A few months later, we we went to the New York Times, and we had actually shot that investigation with virtual reality cameras. So we had 360 degree cameras shooting everything we did, including Lily's removal. And I'll put it a got, link in show notes to that video. Yeah, for sure. And it got you know quite a bit of press coverage, uh, quite a bit of attention, and we didn't really think much of it. Although we've been ready for prosecution. Honestly, I think in the early stages of DXC's history, the the industry sort of recognized how bad the PR would be if they came after us and thought, let's just hope they go away. But we kept doing this and we kept going after bigger and more powerful corporations. And Smithfield is the biggest and most powerful of them all. And a few months later, I got a phone call from someone at a sanctuary in Colorado saying there's essentially a small armada of FBI agents at the sanctuary who were threatening to take this pig that they claimed was Lily um, a three-month-old pig back to Smithfield. And I immediately got on the phone with our lawyers, tried to protect the animal. That animal ended up being mutilated by the FBI. They cut half of her ear off without giving her any painkillers. And one of the interesting things about to do te- that particular to do raid, testing, correct? They probably were doing DNA testing. We're not entirely sure. You know, we'll come out at the actual trial. But one of the interesting things about that experience is that the the sanctuary owners, the place where they took the animals, the volunteers, there were a bunch of young women who were watching them do this. And a few of them apparently like collapsed on the ground, weeping and crying and begging the FBI agents to stop hurting this baby pig. And the FBI agents actually stopped. They were supposed to take DNA samples from both the piglets and they were so horrified by their own actions that they decided, we'll just do the one. But about six months after that raid at a sanctuary in Colorado, Four different felony charges were brought against five activists in Utah, including a prosecution for what's called pattern of unlawful activity, which is the state RICO law in Utah. So we're we're being charged as if we're an organized crime syndicate, essentially. I want to be careful with this next question um, because I want to use somebody's framework without using their example. So Tanasi Coates gave um, the 
Tony Jute Memorial Lecture a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. And he he was talking about human slavery, and I'm not analogizing human slavery to animal suffering, but but the thing he does in this lecture is he talks about a um, ad that was in a paper back in the that era. And it was a slave owner who wanted um, a runaway slave returned. And he talked about how you could recognize her because he had branded her face with the letter M. Hmm. Um, he had branded her face because, like, I don't know, that was his name or something. And But she was a criminal. Um, she had run away. So could you, like, could, could somebody catch this criminal and return it to him? And 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 Coates' point, which he obviously, because he's him, does in a much more beautiful way than I can render here. But talks about what does it mean for society, for that slave owner to have been able to believe and to have been able to talk to others in a way where they would believe that it is the woman who ran away and not the person who enslaved her and branded an M on her face who was a criminal, yeah. right? What does it mean that there was a society um, of, of people who, you know, like they're not that long ago, right? Like we rational human beings. Where the framework was such, where the amount of ideology was such, like the the people had been socialized to go back to what we were talking about earlier as such, that it would be perfectly unremarkable that the criminal is a person who ran in that scenario. And it's a thing I think about with these issues here now that what does it mean and like what does it look like to you when you're looking out at society that you're the criminal in this case like the people who try to rescue the pig not the people who let it suffer in that way not the people who are going to like keep it in the gestational crate or kill it or that there's a way in which what has become normalized is so gruesome i'm not somebody who's unbelievably um appalled by the idea that people kill animals for food but the industrial way we raise them and make them mm-hmm. suffer, I mean, that's far beyond what human history has an analog for for most of our existence. We didn't have the technology, the antibiotics, et cetera, to do any of this. And so just what what does society look like to you? Like, yeah. what does it look like to you being on the other side of this and being the person who might go to jail for it while whoever runs Smithfield is incredibly fucking rich? Yeah. It's a head trip. I mean, I think for, for years, decades, frankly, I would often walk around, and this is even before I'd actually personally experienced a slaughterhouse, just having this belief system, having read Animal Liberation by Peter Singer and believing these things based on the things that I'd seen in China, based on the relationships I had with animals, I'd walk around sometimes feeling like a zombie, you know, and just wondering how can our society be committing these atrocities against the most gentle, vulnerable beings you could possibly imagine. I mean, just defenseless creatures who've done nothing to us. Not that it would be okay to do any of these things if they had done something to us, but it does make it particularly galling that they're they've been bred to be so gentle. I mean, like a domestic farm big is a 600 pound animal that acts like a little puppy, you know, they're, 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 because we've bred all the aggression out of them. This is what I was saying about their emotional resilience. They don't act of aggression because uh, that would be dangerous for us to allow them to be aggressive. So we've done this, this weird matrix sort of thing where we've diluted ourselves and them into thinking that it's totally fine what's going to happen to them. It's hard too, because if not for the fact that I was a complete failed academic, I don't think I would have been willing to take these risks because it... When I go back for school reunions or when I talk to old professors, you know, I, one of my other mentors is a, a very distinguished professor at Stanford who heads the School of Economic and Policy Research at Stanford. His name is Mark Duggan. And, you know, he's like the head of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And I'm going, hey. And he said, like, oh, here, during the Barry, let's hang out. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm facing felonies. You know, it's just, 
it's embarrassing and shameful. And my family does not support this work as much as I'd like them to. I mean, it's been a long journey for them. So at least they understand why I'm doing it. And ethically, they think it's the right thing to do. But they also think, you know, I'm an extremist. Yeah. Why are you doing these ridiculous, crazy things? And the thing that that I always come back to is, well, two things. One is, if I could <laughs> bring people to that place where that baby pig is having her head crushed against the concrete, or that dog in China when I was eight years old, frankly, even if I didn't see her getting killed, was just in a cage crying. And there's, there's something incredibly powerful about an animal looking you specifically in the eye mm -hmm. and crying for help. Same is true of human beings, yeah. right? That, and especially a vulnerable human being, like a child. Like you've got a nine-year-old or nine-month-old now, but I've got two nieces. And when one of my nieces is hurt and says, I'm hurt and looks at you, there's something deeply human about your desire to go towards that and try and help. And whenever I talk to people about these things and we actually get into the actual facts of these scenarios that I dealt with, with like a baby pig who has a crushed leg and is starving to death and is looking at me and, and I can see in her eyes that she's desperate for someone to help her, there's no one who thinks the wrong thing to do is to take her out, you know? And so that helps me a lot that when you actually dive into the specifics and set aside all the social norms we have, all the expectations we have about who animals are or what's appropriate to do for animals and just ask, what would you do? What would you think the right thing to do is if you saw an animal who's suffering? Universally, I say, yeah, I think we should try and help. And so th that, that helps me a lot. <laughs> get out of this zombie mode because I realize that a lot of what is causing this widespread disconnect to the suffering of animals and the social disapproval of activists like me is the fact that our institutions, social cognition, have led people to think fairly common sense intuitive things that most ordinary people would think are the common sense morally intuitive thing to do are in fact not the right thing to do. And so what we have to do is just reverse that institution and that social norm. One of the things you've come back to a couple of times in our conversation is, one, the feeling of being alone, yeah. of being afraid, and, and in a vivid way of being in a locker. You're facing jail time. Yeah. Have you thought about what jail would be like for you? Have you thought about how you'll approach that? I have, and it's, it's not the most pleasant thing. I mean, when I... So I was with my family this weekend, for example. My dad didn't even actually know I had trial scheduled for December 9th. And I, I told him, I told him, Dad, I might be going to trial. And and he was shaken by it. And I was shaken by his reaction because I realized, you know, I haven't really processed this enough. And I'm going to be disconnected from the people I care about, the animals I love. You know, I've got a 12-year-old a dog who's probably going to pass away in the next year. She's got a lot of health issues. We just had surgery to remove a tumor from her body and she's had two is surgeries from, now is she the dog from china no she's she's a dog i rescued from a dog fighter mm -hmm. and you know she's she feels like my kid she is my kid as mm -hmm. far as i'm concerned i mean i love her as much as a human child and i think a lot of americans feel the same way about their dogs that they really do feel deeply connected to them and feel they're emotionally understood by their dogs or cats in a way that, frankly, sometimes even their partners and their kids don't quite understand. My them. dogs I, do not understand my emotional state <laughs> at all. They're stone cold idiots. Do you I understand their emotional state? Oh yeah, yeah. But okay. but no, like they'll like I could be having the worst day and they'll look at me and be like, "Things are great." Ball, ball, <laughs> ball, ball. Yeah. Well, they're chihuahuas if I remember correctly. No, 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 right? they're terriers. Terriers. Okay. Well, like I, chihuahuas, I would... terriers. All the little dogs. I mean, these are. These are like inbred animals that have gone through no, lots I have of selective mutts. breeding. Don't, no, okay. no, no, I have but mutts. even the mutts, like any small dog, that's not that. That was a wolf. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, 10,000 years that, ago. That's a fair this point. This is a wolf that was more adjusted to the world around them and more socially intuitive than a dog that has been bred to look like a toy. And yeah. Even their brain enough. size. I mean, their brain size is much smaller. Not that the brain size matters. You know, we should still respect dogs that are small, even though their brain size is smaller. But there is there are going to be some differences. Anyway, but you have a you have an older dog. Yeah, I have an older dog. So, I, I mean, I think about, you know, if I go away for a couple of years, I'm probably not going to see her again. She's going to die. And that's that's hurtful. But the the thing that makes me comfortable with it is is the fact that I know it has a purpose. And I know be, not just because of the intellectual weight of these arguments, which I think are compelling arguments, like Erica Chenoweth's work in civil resistance and sacrifice, but also because I just personally feel like it's worth it. <laughs> you know, at some level, you just have to believe that what you're doing is important and meaningful enough that even if it hurts a lot, it's worth it because you feel even worse about what's happened to the animals and even feel even better about the possible benefits. You look at the history, and you know, I, I was a social scientist, but then I became a lawyer. You look at the history of social movements. Another thing that these social movements did very well, eventually, not in the early stages, was eventually change formal institutions. And, and Betsy Palook, a psychologist at Princeton who won a MacArthur grant, has pointed this out, that with the gay rights movement, for example, social norms are really crucial. But at the end of the day, until we got these really key legal cases, there was not a feeling among the populace at large that I could come out in support of gay rights because it didn't seem like it had institutional support. But the first time, and certainly by the time I got up to the Supreme Court, but the first states that started passing in, in the first courts in Hawaii, California, and so on, that started putting on like a mainstream gloss to this once very radical idea that gave everyone who in their intuitions felt like, yeah, why do we mistreat gay people? Like, but that was kind of a shameful thing. I mean, you and I probably remember this. It was kind of a shameful thing to care about gay people in the 1980s and 1990s. There, there were, I remember how many politicians I was in rooms with and you would ask about this issue and they were just clearly lying. Yeah. They were just clearly lying that they didn't support gay marriage because yeah. they just didn't think they could. Yeah, because they thought it was politically untenable. Obama was one of them. Obama was definitely one of them, you know? And I think that th that's important. And I think that one of the ways for us to get to that point where one of these institutions that that have the formal authority of not just the state, because you know I'm a great believer in the idea that state only has as much power as we give it. You know, it's 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 the people who give the state power and the people who give law power. But there's something about these formal institutions that we've all put our trust into: our court system, our legislature. That getting some of these formal institutions to say, yes, you have the right to rescue animals in distress, and the folks who are abusing the animals are the ones who are committing crimes. That I hope will set off a cascade of people who feel, well, if the court is saying that, if a judge is saying that, why can't I say that too? And I think that's what happened in a lot of these iconic court cases in history, whether it's Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, the, some, of the, some of the early suffrage cases and so on. I think it's a good place to come to an end. So let me ask you what's always the final question here, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you wish other people would read? Yeah, I thought about this question a lot and I, I'm gonna go in a different direction than you'd probably expect and not say anything about animals because I've talked a lot about animals. I think the best popular book on social science that I've read in the past few years is a book called Everything is Obvious by Duncan Watts. He's a network scientist now at the University of Pennsylvania, but he did a lot of the early work on attributes of networks that has shifted the thinking in economics, sociology, political science, and sociology away from looking at individual human beings and looking at the attributes of networks. And I think that is the future. I think there's going to be some breakthrough in the next generation where we realize, oh my gosh, for all this time, we thought the relevant unit of analysis in social science is the individual. It's in fact the network. In the same way that when you study biology, you don't look at individual atoms or quarks, you look at genes, you look at DNA. 
So, and I think Duncan Watts sets out that argument better than anybody and everything is obvious. Second book is just a book that taught me everything I know about storytelling. I think that The Brothers Karamazov is, has been described as the best work of fiction in history, and I think it is. And uh, other than animals, Dostoevsky was my most important influence because he has a deep insight into human behavior and human psychology, and in particular, social cognition, the influence that our society has on us. And the, I mean, you think about crime and punishment, for example, the, the conflict between these social institutions and the desire of the individual. And I think for any individual who's trying to grapple with that on a personal level or on a collective level, Dostoevsky still made all these predictions that I think social scientists later theorized and turned into Nobel Prize winning work. And he realized that in the 1800s. So I, I think his work is really prescient. And last, just for practical self-help, you know, Angela Duckworth's work has been very important to me. And she wrote a book called Grit that I really recommend everyone read because when I think about how to be effective as an individual and a team, grit is the most important thing I think you need to have. And she spells it out very carefully and helps people understand how they can become gritty people if they're not yet. So those are the three books I'd recommend. And where can people follow you and what's going to happen with court cases and, and the work you're doing? Yeah, well, uh, you can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, we have a Facebook page, Direct Action Everywhere. And I think I told you before, I might actually be launching a mayoral campaign in Berkeley. That's <laughs> probably going to be a losing mayoral campaign focusing on a green revolution and a green dividend. Um, but you can find out more about that on our Facebook page and, and on my Facebook page. I, I have a personal Facebook page. I'm always open to people writing to me, sending Facebook messages to me because I just love talking to people. And that's Facebook, Wayne Xiong. Wayne Xiong on Facebook. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Ezra. That's the conversation. Uh, I want to say thank you to to Wayne. Um, both, I find the work he does really important. Um, but I also, it's not easy to come into one of these interviews and get pushed to, to go into sort of what is been tough in your life and to be willing to share that and not know how it will be received. So I appreciate that he was here and willing to willing to go into those places. Something I've been exploring on the show recently, obviously, is what it means to live a moral life. And I don't mean to do that from a preachy, judgmental space. I obviously have not sold all of my worldly possessions and moved into a life of full serving the needs of others or combating injustice. But I do want to think, I think it's one of the central questions of being a human being of what it of what is demanded of us or obligated of us or what we should do, right? <laughs> How do you live? And just something that all these episodes are making me think more about, and it's a very small thing, but both what Wayne was talking about with some of these social capital theories of human moral reasoning and, and, and human permission structures and what Peter Singer was talking about in terms of the way we morally reason socially – I think that a lot of us have in different parts of our life a fear of just saying what it is we think is wrong. We're worried. Uh, I've been worried about coming off. I even said at the beginning of this is preachy or judgmental. And I'm a, I'm a political analyst. Like that's my job on some level. It's much harder uh, if you're not right. It's much harder if you don't have a socially constructed way to do that. But I do just want to note that I think something coming out of a lot of these conversations is that one of the most important things that we can do individually, it's not just to give anonymously or to be a good person ourselves, but to try to create space for others to be open about what they see. One of the great impediments to moral behavior is that everybody else isn't doing it. And it's easy to think they're not doing it because they're not moral, but maybe they're as afraid as we all are right? Maybe everybody is afraid of everybody else's social judgment. Uh, one way society protects itself, and certainly one way some of the worst parts of society protect themselves, is by making it just seem ridiculous to question them, right? Making you seem like Lisa Simpson. Uh, there's a 
some of my friends they have a little a little Lisa Simpson like needlepoint in their house and it just it's her like with the finger pointed out just saying the whole damn system is wrong and there's something to it right and um there's something to both the way that personality type is caricatured right is on the one hand maybe right but <laughs> totally annoying it's a pretty powerful defense mechanism. It's a pretty powerful social immune system against being asked to confront things that are happening around us or even things that we're doing in our own lives. And then it's such an absurd one, right? Like that's not going to jail, right? People being a little bit annoyed at you, people thinking you're a little preachy. It's only to say that more people around all of us probably struggle with these issues than we know. And while there can be some discomfort in trying to change them. Um, one of the things that I think is a little bit underplayed, uh, particularly in political rhetoric, where we're so focused on collective action and policy change, that we forget for those things to happen, people have to feel comfortable speaking out individually. And one way people feel comfortable speaking out individually is that the individuals around them are a little bit more open with what they believe, right? And what they think is morally wrong or morally required. That isn't to say anything actually in particular about any issue, right? Animal rights may not be your issue. You may disagree with all these episodes I do. But whatever it is, um, it might be worth doing some thinking on are you creating the social conditions around you for others to be able to connect with their own moral intuitions or speak aloud about what they think is wrong? Um, it's a small thing, but it's something that a lot of us actually can do. As always, my email is EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Again, EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. If you've got reflections or you've got people you'd like to see on the show, either who are living their lives in a way that casts light on some of these questions about what it means to live a good life um, or they think about it in an interesting way, definitely let us know. We're always thinking about an open to guest request. So again, that is EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Thank you today to Jeremy Dalmas for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein shows of Vox Media podcast production. Mm-hmm.